Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean, and this is Politics Unusual. My expectations of life as a Black college student in the 90s were largely shaped by a TV show called A Different World. The show was set on the campus of the fictional Hillman College in Virginia. For the first time, I saw a group of students on TV who looked like me and whose background mirrored my own. I watched A Different World religiously and knew that even if I couldn't attend Hillman, I was drawn to some of the show's elements. Great parties, community service, renowned professors, strong alumni networks, and Greek life. 20 years ago, I became a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, the first sorority created by and for African-American women. I had friends, family members, and teachers who were members, and I was fascinated that the young women on the campus of the University of Virginia with the highest GPAs, substantial leadership positions, and intricate step routines were all in sororities. I saw in them the kind of woman I wanted to become. Now, for most people, affiliating with fraternities and sororities ends at graduation. But for African-Americans, once denied entry into American colleges, membership in these historic organizations lasts a lifetime. This hour will explore the significance of these organizations for African-American communities and their place in broader debates about race and identity in the U.S. I'm joined now by Lawrence Ross. He's the author of The Divine Nine, the history of African-American fraternities and sororities. We reached him on the road. He's driving cross-country from L.A. to Virginia in what he calls the blackest road trip ever. I'm also joined by Alicia Pegue Spearman, international chairman of the Leadership Fellows Program for Alpha Kappa Alpha and a local labor and employment attorney. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So, Lawrence, let's ask the most basic question. Who are the Divine Nine when we talk about these historically black organizations, and how did they come to be? Uh, the Divine Nine are nine different African-American fraternities and sororities, five uh, fraternities and four sororities. I think we have to look at it in terms of a macro. Uh, the, the fraternal movement in terms of white uh, fraternities and sororities that, that began before the Civil War, but it kind of blossomed right after the Civil War when, when colleges uh, moved from being kind of the, the bastion of this white male Protestant, uh, Protestant rich uh, uh, family members as sons uh, uh, going to college. And college uh, started to transform in terms of a social, economic, and educational transformational uh, place where getting a degree could actually transform you as society. And as a result, the colleges became, began to get a little bit more plural. And around the turn of the century, you have many more African-Americans on college campuses, many more Asians on college campuses, and a lot more Latinos, typically from uh, South America and from Spain coming on college campuses. And you begin to see the idea of having uh, fraternal uh, fraternity disorders uh, that are focused toward particular ethnicities and races uh, come about. And for 
these students uh, were African American students, either on uh, historically black college universities like Howard University, or were going to predominantly white institutions like uh, Cornell or Indiana or Butler. What's happening is that these students typically are going to schools where there are a handful of African Americans uh, on campus, particularly the ones on predominantly white institutions. Um, so what's happening is that the the idea of paternalism is one as a support system primarily, uh, where there's an idea that if we're if these campuses pretty much think themselves to be liberal uh, simply by the act of letting African-American students uh, on campus, but they're not giving support, one of the ways that you can gain support initially in terms of just on the college campus in terms of getting degrees is to create structures like fraternities and sororities. So, Lawrence, a lot of the organizations that you just mentioned were founded at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Why was Howard so important to forming this fraternal movement for these organizations? My fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha, was formed at Cornell uh, in 1906 and, uh, as the first uh, African-American fraternity. And one of the things uh, that the uh, founders of Alpha Phi Alpha talked about was that they wanted to make sure that they uh, only set up chapters at top-quality um, schools. Uh, you know, what I guess uh, today what we would think about as being uh, certified schools uh, in terms of in terms of the, in terms of the level of education. And Howard was uh, pretty much the, the pinnacle when it came to historically black college and university. So it was a natural as being one of the, the, the first places to expand for Alpha Phi Alpha uh, with, the, with our beta chapter there. And then at the same time, uh, for, uh, for African institutes on campus, this idea that Coming around in terms of uh, using fraternity uh, stories as a as a social unit, yes, but as a service unit too made a lot of sense. You also have to remember that this is also during a time uh, for African Americans where you are connected not just simply by you know your sort of education or where you, where you where you are in terms of your community, but you're also connected by your association. Um, and, and Howard would be a, a place where that would be really really kind of so. You would have people being connected by their, uh, by their, you know, whether or not they're Masons or Eastern Star or whether or not they were members of the AME Church or the Baptist Church and so on and so forth. Fraternity is already kind of fit right on in that in terms of the in terms of in terms of the social structure for African Americans. It was very very attractive to Howard students um, because you could see uh, the, the fraternity is already becoming a, a mechanism that would allow the the African American race to actually strive. And that's also the difference between other um, historically African-American associations where you didn't have to have a college degree. All the Divine Nine organizations are based on college-educated males and females, and that was a difference um, in establishing them as well. And so I think to bring together your comment, Alicia, and also your remarks, Lawrence, about the importance of social structure and networking – One of the things that I've noticed in visiting the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. is how many of the people who are showcased in that museum are members of these historically black fraternities and sororities. People like Mary McLeod Bethune, uh, Dr. Maya Angelou, John Lewis, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., all of these people who have achieved greatness in various fields are members of these groups. Lawrence, what's that connection between the members of these organizations and the types of achievements that they've made? Who are some of the people that our listeners may be familiar with there? Oh, we have a lot. I mean, if you ever sit down with any member of our Divine Nine, they will 
you know, give you as many long <laughs> lists as you like. But we pretty much have a who's who of uh, famous African Americans in our organization. You can talk about Thurgood Marshall being a member of, of Alpha Phi Alpha, Justin Jackson, Megatai Phi, Arthur Ashe, Kappa Alpha Psi, Huey Newton, Sigma Phi Beta Sigma, uh, Bobby Rush of Iowa Phi Theta, Coretta Scott King, Alpha Kappa Alpha, um, Robert Jordan, Justin Theta, Jeremy Thurston, the writer for Zeta Phi Beta, and MC Light. You know, in terms of the modern day for Civic Um But I have always said that I'm, I'm less impressed by the famous members that we have in our ranks than the fact that what we're able to do is to cultivate leadership um, from an 18 or 19 year old who becomes a member of our organization, a freshman or sophomore uh, who comes into our organization. And the reason why we're able to do that and why we are specifically so successful in doing that is because we, we create the tools, uh, kind of like we, we give these students, particularly on college campuses, a tool shed in which to, to, to understand how to lead, whether or not it's on their college campus or whether or not it's in the community. And it's invaluable. Um, I always talk about, particularly within Alpha, I always, I always say that uh, Alpha is in the experience business. Uh, we're in the, the, the business of providing members with experiences. That, and I think that's pretty much true for all of our fraternities and stories. We, when you're surrounded by, by dynamic people, well, not literally if you're talking about an 18-year-old who is absolutely dynamic or a 90-year-old who has been in the, in the fraternity or sorority uh, for, you know, six, seven, or, uh, seven decades, you'll, you're, you're inspired to not only uh, do well for yourself, but you're inspired to do uh, well per the, the uh, principles and ideals of the fraternity or the sorority. Now, when most people think of Greek life, they think of Animal House and, you know, raucous parties and the real social aspect. But so much of what the two of you have mentioned is the emphasis on service and on community. Why that focus for these organizations? Why not the more social life of traditional fraternities and sororities? Why has community service been so important to these organizations? I think one of the things in terms of it, it speaks to when our fraternities and sororities were actually founded. Um, you, you, we're, we're, our fraternities and sororities were basically founded, uh, you know, in 10 to, to 20 years after Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, creating uh, this idea in, in public policy that African Americans were second class citizens uh, due to the Jim Crow segregation. But as a result, I think what they're the fraternities and sororities, you know, still like to have fun, and even from the beginning uh, days of our, of our fraternities and sororities, the, the social aspect was an important aspect. However, one of the things that, that, that differentiated us from white fraternities and sororities is that when our experience did not end when, when you received your degree. Uh, it couldn't end when you received a degree because the degree, the degree itself was a weapon in order to fight against a society that said that you were inferior compared to everyone else. And so, as I mentioned earlier, what you have and what you find are members of these fraternities and sororities who are what we use the old, old, uh, old-fashioned uh, notion of race men or race women, people who are conscious about what it means to be African-American, and they're, they're, they know that everything that they do within the community or within their profession is reflected upon the race itself. And when you have that idea, that identity where you have that mission in your in your um, in your your ethos, then what happens is that everyone strives to make their community better. So there becomes this notion that we have to increase the uh, the number of educated people in our community. So that's why you will always see a number of different programs, uh, particularly in terms of mentorship uh, for youth 
uh, African-American and Latino youth in particular uh, coming uh, from our organizations into our, our communities. I couldn't, I couldn't agree any, anymore. I think that each of us are, each one teach one as a theme in African-American communities, reach back and bring somebody else up. My parents were initiated, my father in Omega Sci-Fi in 1961, my mom in Alpha Kappa Alpha in 1962. Then you had the 70s and my brother's in Omega, my husband's in Omega. And I think that we all just have community service event. You have to help out. We're not done yet. There's so much work to do. I mean, now they want to say post-racial, and with everything that's going on in the news, we're clearly not post-racial, nor have we ever been. So I'm not sure when that term even came up. But as African-Americans, we know there's work in our communities, people who still need to be college-educated. There's still first-time generation college students that we're trying to attract and bring to college. And there's just tons to do in every community, from economic empowerment to education, setting them up for success. So that's part of the ethos of our um, Divine Nine fraternities and sororities, reaching back, giving back, and bringing more into the fold and let them excel and soar in their own careers and professions. So coming up, we'll talk about some of the work that has to be done and the work that is being done. Lawrence Ross is the author of The Divine Nine, The History of African-American Fraternities and Sororities. He joined us from his cross-country road trip. And we'll also hear more from Alicia Piggy Spearman, International Chairman of the Leadership Fellows Program and Vice President in Human Resources. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We'll be back after the break. Brown-Dean, and this is Politics Unusual. Today we're talking about black sororities and fraternities. One of those divine nine organizations is Alpha Kappa Alpha, the oldest Greek letter black sorority in the nation. It was founded in 1908 at Howard University. Today there are over 290,000 members in chapters across the world, including Dubai and Tokyo. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I am a member of this organization and have been since college, and so is my guest. Alicia Piggy Spearman is International Chairman of the Leadership Fellows Committee for Alpha Kappa Alpha and also a labor and employment attorney. Alicia, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So people may ask, they, they heard Lawrence talk about the history of these organizations, and we talked about Alpha Kappa Alpha being the first sorority. What is that organization's mission, and how does it fit into the broader role of Divine Nine organizations? Well, I think that Alpha Kappa Alpha is founded on high scholastic um, achievement and study of African-American women, and that our whole tenet is service to all mankind. So we want to make sure that in our communities where we live, where we work, that we're always giving back to our community, addressing community service needs. And I think sororities are very relevant today from numerous perspectives. We need to have more women in electoral positions, in the Senate, in the Congress, in local mayoral races. Um, that still needs to exist. We still have very limited women in positions on the C-suite, whether it's CEO, chief human resource officer, or what have you. And I think that you know when you're in organizations such as ours, you have a way and an avenue to have a voice to create 
creative programs to address whatever your society needs you to address. And that's very important to have a voice. To think about that voice and the ways in which women use their voices, not just during their time in college, but also in their professional career. How important have these networks and these associations been to you in your own life? Well, I think they've been invaluable. Um, As you know, in Alpha Kappa Alpha, we have um, a biannual meeting that occurs every two years. And then between that, we have leadership seminars. So whether you're at those national meetings or our local regional conferences, we always have opportunities for self-development, self-improvement via workshops. Um, I've conducted some of the workshops, but I've definitely attended lots of the workshops too because you have some of the top echelon in their field who share their ideas, whether it's about you know fundraising, whether it's about how to get to the C-suite, whether it's about self-care through health or mental health issues. There's just so many topics that we can address. And I think that um, the sorority has allowed me to get exposure, uh, have expertise, have experts teach me on a variety of things. And then you can use those ideas and bring them back to your local chapters in terms of the sorority. But even in your own profession, it just empowers you to maybe speak up and um, know how to act and deal with a variety of people. Because when you're leading a committee or leading a chapter, you're in a leadership role. The same thing at work, where you have a team of people reporting to you, or you have to interact with peers and colleagues, there's certain ways to get things done. You know, what do they say? It's easier to get something done with honey than vinegar. You know, it's how you say something. It's how you ask for something. Not necessarily what you're asking for, but it's how you do it. And I think in the sorority, we have numerous opportunities to um, learn from different leaders and leadership styles, and that's critically important. One of the things that I think is is so important for listeners to think about is the structure of these organizations, that you join at a local chapter level, but you are connected on a regional level to other chapters in your area, nationally and also internationally. So there are multiple ways for people to meet other members, but to really, as you say, sharpen their skills and have an impact on these problems and these issues that their communities face. I want to take a step back, though, mm-hmm. in terms of developing that voice and, and being connected. Why did you choose to, one, join a sorority, and two, why choose to join Alpha Kappa Alpha? Well, obviously, I grew up, my mother was an AKA, and she was very active, and a lot of our family friends were members of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, so I saw strong women who I admired, who had fun, who cried together, laughed together, did great community service projects. They mentored lots of people. As a child, people would come up to my mom, do you remember me? I was in your follow-through program. You all mentored me, and I graduated from college, and all those good stories. And then when I got to college, and I went to a predominantly white institution, Wellesley College, and my chapter is Lambda Upsilon, Wellesley, Harvard, and MIT, some of the women that I saw in college were the leaders on campus. And I went to their community service programs, learned more about it, and then chose for myself that this is a way that I want to give back and have a voice and just be part of a sisterhood that I thought was phenomenal. And it really is different from other organizations because, you know, even if you're at a school and you don't click with people there at your school, we're international. You're going to move around from jobs. You're going to move to Oklahoma. You're going to move to Chicago. But as a member of the Divine Nine, you're not too upset by that because you know we're worldwide, and you can always find your sorority sisters. And even if you're not in your own sorority, you're going to find a member of another Divine Nine, and we look out for each other. I think that's important to note. You graduated from Wellesley, which is a very esteemed women's college. 
But you also spent a semester studying at Howard University, which is one of the preeminent historically black colleges and universities in our country. Did having that connection to the sorority help you navigate those spaces? Or did you just see it as, you know, part of who you were as a student exploring opportunities? Well, I first, the reason I went to Howard was because all of my family, my parents and my brother all went to Historically Black College and University. And although I got into Howard and FAMU, I loved the women at Wellesley and kind of made the choice to go a different route, but I still wanted to experience what they experienced. And so going to Howard University, there was another member from my chapter at Wellesley who came to Howard with me, and there were other sorority sisters who transferred or were on exchange from Duke University, Stanford University. So yes, definitely already being a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha on a historically black college and university made the entree easier because we wear our colors, our pink and green, you know, we have AKA on our jackets or whatever, and people would instantly come up to you, ask you where you're from, and it's other Greek organizations as well. So it was very... uh I hate to say it, but it's kind of a popularity thing on HBCU, too. I mean, everybody knows the different Greek fraternities and sororities. Um, but it was easy just going there as a – coming there, I felt like I was coming home. I mean, that's the first time probably that I talked to professors more than I did at, at Wellesley. and had a real connection. I got to see people who looked like me teaching my classes. And um, it was just very different experience, and I loved every minute of it. That kind of mentoring seems to be key. Lawrence talked about it a lot, of mentoring young people. But you're now involved in an intergenerational leadership experience of empowering college-age women to go out and make inroads in the business field or in public service. Talk a little bit about the uh, committee that you chair and what you're doing in that realm of empowering young women. Oh, my goodness. I love this. We're in our 38th year. Alpha Kappa Alpha has had this Leadership Fellows Program for 38 years. And uh, I just finished chairing my third program, and that was in Boston, uh, Massachusetts. And we allow college um, members of our sorority to apply, highly selective. We get over hundreds of applications, and we basically choose around 37 applicants. And basically, they have to have a minimum GPA of 3.0. They have to write an essay, sometimes talking about um, authentic leadership, transformational leadership, multidimensional leadership have been some of the essay questions that we asked. They have to have three recommendations from a graduate advisor in the sorority of the chapter that they're in. A university official has to give a recommendation. And then wherever they're doing their community service, they also have to give a recommendation. And then me and my committee, my small committee, we sort through all the applications and select these phenomenal women. And I think what I've realized is, wow, there's so many young women who really don't have people to talk to them about the various things that we address because it's really a three-prong program. We want to make sure that we have um, leaders that can um, take our sorority into the next 100-plus years, and we want to develop them and let them understand the AKA structure and how they can be leaders. It's personal development. There's issues. There's suicide. There's mental health issues. There's domestic violence issues. Um, there's you know real issues, real talk that we talk about as well. And then there's the career. We want them to excel in whatever their chosen fields are. So it's just really a phenomenal experience to kind of really change and transform lives. I think one of the other faculty members that came to present and heard us do a workshop on the first 90 days, Impressions Matter, was like, basically, you're giving all the secrets I didn't learn until I was 20 years of my career. Because we really haven't had, traditionally, lots of African Americans that sit at the vice president levels Mm -hmm. or other executive levels. And there's certain things they don't teach you in school. There's book knowledge, but then there's how to navigate 
when you're in a corporation or you're in your school politics, how do you have to look? How do you have to dress? There are certain other secrets. What's the difference between a mentor and a sponsor? That's a big difference. So we're focusing now on Alpha Kappa Alpha, but the sort of principles that really bind together all of the Divine Nine sororities are the ideas of sisterhood, scholarship, and service. Is there a friendly rivalry between these groups? Do we really get along, or is it as intense as saying, are you a Cavs fan or a Golden State Warriors fan? Well, it's funny. I think it goes along your age. You know, in college, it's probably a little bit more intense. Who has the better step show? You know, who's looking the flyest on the campus? That's an old school word, probably flyest, but I don't know what the new school (laughs) word is. But, you know, it's probably still a friendly rivalry. My best friend in college, her mom was a Delta. She pledged Delta. I pledged AKA. I think we both got teased about it, but we both didn't want to really care. We're both friends, best friends to this day. And I think as you mature, you know, Kalila, we're in other organizations with women from various sororities. And you're exactly right. It's all about sisterhood or brotherhood, service and scholarship. And we watch out for each other. So on resumes, if I see somebody with a divine nine um, on the resume, it doesn't have to be my sorority, any sorority fraternity, they're going to the top of the pack. Because when you have all these different, all these people who are equally qualified, then what's the edge? You know, why are they going to choose you? Affinities, relationships, networking, being kind, having a good reputation are all things of why you get accepted into a school, a program, why you get a promotion. At a certain point when everyone's smart and you've proven yourself, what's the je ne sais quoi? What's the difference for the next level? The next level is do you people like you? Do people want to work for you? Do people want to follow your leadership? And, you know, all those kind of things that we don't really talk about. And so I think it's a friendly rivalry once you get out of college. I think what what makes this so interesting for me and not just as a member of one of these groups is that all of the things that you just talked about that make these organizations unique are in some ways connected to how, you know, business and politics and social life works in the United States overall about creating those networks, having the development of those soft skills that we don't really teach in classes, and how far you can get in doing that. So it's important for these organizations, but it's really about American life in general. What is the edge that you can get? And more importantly, how do you use the access that you've been given to empower and share with other people? I think that's really important because I have tons of mentees. A lot of them are lawyers. Um, other professions. And even though I know I'm a labor employment attorney by trade, I have a dual career. So sometimes I flip back, flip flop between vice president of human resources, which is my current position, or I'll go back to being an employment lawyer. But I, all my mentees know if I hear that you're not reaching back and pulling someone else up, mentoring someone else, then I, I don't want you to be my mentee because you can't just reach out and reach out when you need help. You have to always constantly be helping other people. We're so far away on diversity metrics in almost every aspect, there's no reason for you to let rest on your laurels that you're in some big position. Have you hired anybody in your department? Have you trained anybody? Have you given constructive advice? So there's just so much that we can do and, and have fun doing it. It's so much fun. When you talk about soft skills, no one talks about that. And I talk to lawyers especially. We're kind of hard edge where we analyze, we do this. But do we have the soft skills that make someone feel comfortable with coming to us and want to promote us? So Alpha Kappa Alpha has now celebrated 109 years. And the other sororities and fraternities have either celebrated their centennial anniversary or are approaching that. As you look forward to the next 100 years, for these organizations, 
what are you hoping for them to achieve? Oh, there's just so many things I can hope for. I just think that if we could um, have more representatives in elected positions, I think that would be very, very important. I think that if we great, if we could show others, we know who we are, but have like a unity event amongst the Divine Nine, you know, on one day across the nation. Those are like the big hopes that I have, or even regionally, if we had something to show, you know, there's a lot of negativity in the news, but there's so much positive things that go on, especially with the Divine Nine, people reaching in their pockets and helping send someone book money to launching a workshop on economic empowerment. There's so much. And so I just hope that I know we'll never become irrelevant because we're there's such a need. We're always needed. I think I would just ask that we continue to tell our positive stories and share with people all the positive aspects that being a part of an organization um, can do for you. Alicia, thank you. Coming up, we'll talk to a UConn sociologist who is an unlikely member of a black fraternity. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We'll be back after the break. Kalila Brown-Dean, and this is Politics Unusual. Today we're talking about the history and culture of African-American sororities and fraternities. I'm joined in studio by Alicia Piggy Spearman, International Chairman of the Leadership Fellows Committee for Alpha Kappa Alpha. Our next guest joins the likes of Bill Clinton, Jane Addams, and Eleanor Roosevelt as white members of historically black Greek organizations. Matthew Huey is Associate Professor of Sociology at UConn, and he teaches in the Africana Studies Institute and the American Studies Program. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's ask the most obvious question that I'm sure you have gotten many times over the years. Why did you decide to join a black fraternity as a white man? Well, I'm a little bit different than some of the folks you mentioned before. Um, I take particular exception to Bill Clinton, who's a member <laughs> of my fraternity, and didn't do, in my opinion, the best things for black folks. But um, I pledged uh, Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated in the fall of 1996. And prior to then, I was fairly anti-Greek. Um, my views of what Greek life were, I think, largely came from mass media, which was dominated by images like Animal House, right, where you have um, inebriated white guys wearing wearing toga sheets and, and getting into into no good and I just found this a bit ridiculous and and the proposition that one might pay for their friendships beyond the pale. Um, but I grew up in the South and in a predominantly black neighborhood and, and many of my mentors slowly began to tell me that they were members of fraternities themselves, but of, of black Greek letter organizations. And I started investigating them more and found that they were very different. Um, in their genesis, in their early development, and in their continued activities. And it really appealed to me, many of the things that they did. Uh, when I got to college, um, I pledged, and uh, yeah, 21 years later, here we are. 
So I think, you know, with the, the ribbing aside, I think, Matthew, what you also represent is not just growing diversity within these organizations, but we're also starting to see the growth of other kinship-based organizations. So there are a number of uh, Latinx fraternities and sororities. There are now Jewish fraternities that abound. What do you see as the key differences now, not just historically between these groups, but the contemporary differences between historically black fraternities and sororities and sort of the, you know, the groups that come to mind when people think of Greek life? Right. Well, I don't think I can entirely disentangle the contemporary differences from their historical ones. Um, You know, white Greek letter organizations were found to be kind of the, the cream of the crop at a time in which going to college or university was restricted to white male property owners. And they were vehicles for the reproduction of, of elitism. And in large extent, they still function in that way. The founding of black fraternities and now, as you mentioned, Latinx and Asian and Jewish and, and other specialty organizations doesn't come out of that same goal or context. It comes out of one of, of exclusion in which these organizations were largely trying to engage in in community uplift programs, whether it's civil activism or education, advocating for public policy, engaging in philanthropy or community service or what have you. And that still is a a huge difference between these organizations today. It's not to say that traditional white Greek-letter organizations don't also do those things, but many of the reasons why people join and stay committed long beyond their college years, which is a key difference between white Greek letter organizations and organizations for people of color um, is, is what we see today is a lifelong commitment that is not simply a social activity, but a service endeavor. Matthew, you mentioned this notion of elitism. And so I wanted to bring Alicia into this conversation as well. So to both of you, some people argue that these historically black fraternities and sororities are elitist, that they are only open to college-educated individuals. And because of that, it may become classist, right? You have to have a certain uh, financial cachet in order to attend college in this country. What do you make of those claims, that these groups essentially are elitist groups that uh, reinforce privilege within communities of color? Matthew? I mean, there's some truth to that. I, I, I think it's unfair to focus simply on Greek letter organizations, and specifically, you know, Greek letter organizations like Black Greek letter organizations or Latinx ones. Um, if we're gonna if we're gonna really pull that apart, I think we have to talk about college and 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 university life in general as being one in the United States that's incredibly atypical to the rest of the world in which we we charge and often make the people that are going to college and university that are the most economically vulnerable to go into debt in order to do so, which is, you know, in my opinion, inhumane and immoral and not even pragmatically feasible in the long run for any nation state that wants to develop its own human capital. Um, So, I mean, there is some truth to the the elitism charge, but I think a larger picture or a, a better picture, a more objective picture is to look at all the different activities that these organizations engage in and whether they actively try to um, develop elitism and exclusion and so forth, or if they're really kind of reaching backward and trying to to pull up the communities from whence they come. And and these organizations, yes, in some ways, have been and and are still to a certain extent elite, 
but they also in some ways work against that at the same time. So the picture is a lot more complex and I don't think you can, can paint it with a, with a single brush. Yeah, I think there's any organizations have requirements. You know, you have a requirement to get your job. You have to have a bachelor's degree or you have to have mechanical engineering experience or whatever you have. I think that once you're in college, there's no discrepancy whether you're from uh, a more economically disadvantaged family. If you have Pell Grants and you're getting Pell Grants of financial aid or if you're from an elite family where you're paying the full tuition. And many of our members are first-time um, college attendees. Um, some of their families have, they have no members of the fraternities in their families. So it really is open. Once you're in college, which I guess obviously the prerequisite, you can join if you have the GPA and if you have the desire to give back and do community service and be a value to people in your community. Matthew, as a fellow professor who spends a lot of time on college campuses, you have written extensively about fraternities and sororities and the ways in which uh, broader racial tensions play out on campuses and what it may mean, for example, and I've read some of your work where you talk about public funding through tax dollars of these organizations that essentially become racially closed. Can you talk a little bit about that, that tension between what we support publicly and how traditional fraternities and sororities become hyper-segregated? Yeah, so it's not just a matter of hyper-segregation, right? I think when we talk about the Greek letter system and race in general and how race pervades so much of American institutions. Um, we need to think about not just separation or difference, but, but inequality in terms of power and resources. Right? And, and so that's why in, in other places I've called the, the Greek letter system in the United States the, a form of American apartheid. Right? Because if we're talking about segregation, we have different organizations that are, that are distinct. Um, they also work in different ways. They work toward networking and as a, as a kind of social vehicles for the reproduction of power or for lifting people up that, that don't have that power. Um, and for white Greek letter organizations, it really reproduces white dominance on campus. And by that, I mean several things. White Greek letter organizations often have houses that, if you're talking about public universities, are often partially or entirely subsidized by public tax dollars. Uh, they often get co-curricular support uh, from the institutions, they often get academic support, and, and some universities even have earmarked positions in student government. And then symbolically, they're often hailed as model students, and, and the undergraduate kind of social scene is designed around white Greek life. So all the research points to white fraternities and sororities as the campus movers and shakers of the undergraduate social scene in that they set the social tone on campus. Now, those resources and symbolic capital are not often afforded to black Greek letter organizations. They often don't have the amount of students on campus to then form a large chapter, to then have the financial support uh, to create a house. And if they do have a house because of racism and discrimination, and we've seen this time and time again, when more than three or four black men walk around on a college campus together, unless they're part of a sports team, people freak out and think they're a gang. And if you, if you add into that they're wearing the same colors and they're using hand signs and they're doing all that, that often offends a lot of white sensibilities and, and evokes a kind of prejudice toward them and discrimination that their white counterparts don't have to face. So when we're talking about the Greek letter system in general, race, power, and inequality pervades that system entirely. And it's not just a matter of difference. These organizations are treated differently and they're treated unfairly. We've seen this growing racial tension on campuses across the U.S., at places like Mizzou, Berkeley, Yale, um, Evergreen State College, and others. And Alicia, recently there were 
instances at American University in Washington, D.C., where the first African-American student body president was, uh, you know, sort of singled out and threatened as well as her sorority and her organization. How can these groups help students navigate this racial tension and what seems to be a growing racial divide in our country? Well, I think any divine nine organization can have workshops talking about tensions, talking about perceptions, how to deal when you're driving while black and you get stopped. There's a lot of things you can do that way. You can have someone come in and talk about your rights if you're questioned by a professor or if you're questioned by um you know, an officer. So I found that incident really brought home because when I got back from Howard University on Exchange, a friend of mine, a sorority sister, as a matter of fact, ran for president of the Wellesley College Student Government, and I ran for vice president. We did not both expect to win, and we did win. And there was a big uproar, and they wanted a re-election. And so that was really, really harsh. There was a lot of stuff going on on campus. Jesse Jackson got involved. And I remember when it came re-election time, all the Divine Nine from all of Boston, you know, Wells is outside of Boston, they all drove to our campus and stood around with red, black, and green armbands on, and we won the re-election. And so it reminds me that sometimes when you're in power, that was Sora Dumpson is her name, um, she won the student government uh, president at American, first time an African-American won. It's just reality. Some people do not want to give power to African-Americans. And that's probably, that's part of what happened. But I think that if you heard her speak at some of the press conference, she was eloquent. We're smart enough. We're not going to shrink back and just take it, you know, without doing anything. And that's why I love the young folks who are involved with different um, activism roles and speaking up and teaching each other to deal with this because you you can't hide from it. And um, life is not fair, as I tell my teenager. Um, I tell her racism exists, sexism exists, but you're still going to succeed because you're going to find ways around it. And I think for me, it's better to deal in reality than sugarcoat it and hide her from her. And then she gets to college and experience something and freaks out that she's treated differently. Um, And so that's just the way that I deal with it. I think that our Divine Nine organizations, we have mentors and members like on the phone, we can all come into our office, talk to us, and we can work through the situation. But I think also, you know, sharing with the campus and school communities, what is white privilege? Um, what is racism? How do, how do you experience it? We live in the same zip code. Why are my f- friends getting stopped coming to my house, but your friends never get stopped? And I think it's an aha moment for a lot of people who don't have those discussions because people don't like discussing race in America. It's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Matthew, how are you seeing that discomfort on campuses? Do you do you feel that colleges and universities are open and receptive to being challenged on these issues? Or do you feel like the sort of institutional norms and structures sweep things under the rug instead of dealing with them head on? I mean, I think large in large part, colleges and universities sweep things under the rug. And many of them are concerned, first and foremost, with their bottom line. I mean, you know, we know that money matters, but I'm, I'm often shocked to the extent in which morals and, and ethical behavior are, are sublimated for pursuing money and, and, and profit and, and making sure that there's a lot in the, in the coffers to weather uh, tough times. These organizations are, especially for white Greek letter organizations, in many ways are, are incubators for really negative opinions and attitudes. Right? There's research that shows that white Greek letter organizations hold more Eurocentric and racially regressive attitudes than both non-Greek students and Greek members of, of black Greek letter organizations, Latinx organizations, et cetera. 
right? So it's not just a matter, as I was saying before, of, of separation, but there's a crucial difference in terms of power and inequality and, and how these organizations are propped up, founded, and, and then engaged with, with the university, right? The fact that they're getting homes and houses and so forth in which they can engage in illicit activity and illicit behavior and so forth is problematic. And universities often know this but turn a blind eye. When I teach an undergraduate class on race, I always ask my students, you know, if you wanted to go get illicit materials, such as illicit drugs and underage drinking and so forth, where do you go? And they always tell me, well, you go to the white fraternity and sorority houses. Everyone knows that it's there, but it's an open secret. And no one wants to touch a powerful organization that has a huge and financially well-endowed alumni base. And so this is, again, why I call this a form of American apartheid. It's not just about separation. It's about a deep-seated inequality. Given the sort of concerns about Greek life writ large, there are, you know, hazing deaths and hazing investigations. I'm thinking about Penn State right now. There's an effort at Wesleyan University to integrate or go co-ed for the fraternities or they won't be recognized by the university. There are concerns about sexual assault. A lot of people are saying Greek life is a problem. What do you think when we look forward for not just Divine Nine organizations, but for fraternities and sororities across the board, what are those organizations going to have to do in order to persist beyond these challenges? Well, I'm not sure it's a matter of what so much they have to do in terms of what the colleges and universities are going to have to do to to support them and to make sure that, that both the campus life and these organizations are relevant. You know, Black Greek Letter organizations are trying in many, and trying in very different ways and with different programs to stay relevant. Um, if you look at the history of the civil rights movement, for example, um, black fraternities and sororities were at the forefront of that, both in, in contributing money and particular members were, were lawyers and civil rights lawyers, uh, activists and, and on the forefront, but also engaging in particular programming, whether it was from economic empowerment to, to to boycotting, to, to civil disobedience, or kind of racial consciousness raising. Whether or not colleges and universities want to engage in that and kind of be different as some campuses are, are kind of toying around with, as you mentioned a few that are they're throwing around ideas about what they may do to move forward. That's going to be the crux of whether they try to be different and actually engage in a new culture and structure in which material resources are allocated fairly and equitably across the board, and all student groups are given equal opportunities, and we watch the bottom line of these outcomes. Because what I see a lot is college administrators kind of having a laissez-faire approach to Greek life where they say, well, we're not really doing anything to prop up or help or stop. But when it's already unequal and you don't do anything, that inequality usually reproduces itself. That's the nature of inequality. So unless colleges and universities want to address that, I don't see much changing. So as we move to close, I want to ask both you, Matthew, and Alicia, you have membership in these organizations for quite some time. What is your most cherished memory or experience in your affiliation? Alicia, I'll start with you. Oh, my goodness. There's just so many good memories. How can I pick one memory? I mean, you know, when you join and your mother comes and she's a member and she pins you with family friends that grow up, that's a great memory. Um, this international position is a whole new uh, viewpoint from my sorority. So um, being able to empower and transform young women, that's just a very good feeling. 
um, to be of service and give guidance to people who later on I think can be the international president or committee chairman. So I really can't pinpoint one because there's just so many um, good memories of people being there for me personally, me being there for others. It's just part of who we are. Um, you don't have to be a best friend in the sorority, but if you're a soror and something's going on, I'm going to help you. And so I just treasure being a part of the Divine Nine um, in general for many reasons. Matthew? You know, I, I think the closeness that I have with my fraternity brothers, especially my chapter brothers and, and my line brothers, that where we all join together is is incredibly tight, and I've never experienced that type of, of unity and camaraderie with another group of people before. Um, and that's something really special that I think a lot of organizations, regardless of Greek letter life, could learn a lot from African-American organizing traditions. You know, we often think about race and ethnicity in the United States in terms of this implicit assimilation framework in which people of color and organizations in those communities are thought about needing to assimilate or organize or somehow be included or be a part of the, the larger overall white mainstream. But I think a lot of mainstream or white organizations can learn a lot from that type of camaraderie and organizing that, that takes place in these organizations, because it is something special and, and, and quite uh, important. So I'd like to thank my guest, Matthew Huey. He's an associate professor of sociology at UConn, and also Alicia Pegues Spearman, chairman of the International Leadership Fellows Committee for Alpha Kappa Alpha. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean, and this is Politics Unusual. 